0: Hello everyone and welcome back. Welcome back from the Zoom rooms. If you're in a Zoom room, great to see you. For those joining us online as we continue our teaching series, Unseen Reality um, in the book of Revelation. Now before we dive right in, and we will be doing that, diving right in, um, we're going to have the reading. So do you want to come up? This was a very last minute ask. So Ben has stepped in late on and is, from the microphone over there, is going to read um, from the next instalment in Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church in Pergamon.
1: To the church in Pergamon. To the angel of the church in Pergamon writes, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give him some, hidden, some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Amen. We
0: thought last week was intense.
1: Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come and speak to
0: us now through your word. Bring the words of Jesus to life in us and through us. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, quick recap if you missed last Sunday. And by the way, what a phenomenal job Damalala and Emma did last week. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. If I was to summarise um, Damalola's talk in one phrase, it would be this: What's on the inside will come out under pressure. We were looking at the letter to the church in Smyrna, and Damalola hi- highlighted that Smyrna, the root word is myrrh, which is a resin right. But this resin releases phenomenal fragrance when it's crushed. And Damalola looked at this Greek word, "thlipsis," which means intense pressure. Myrrh, under intense pressure, releases a beautiful fragrance. And the people of God in persecution, under intense pressure, what do they release? And the answer is the fragrance of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the spirit of the living God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. A little bit like this. What's on the inside, it will come out under pressure. (laughs) wasn't paying attention over to the Guthries, did I? Let's see if I can reach the back. I can't quite reach the back. But you get the idea what's on the inside will come out under pressure. It always happens. And this has been a season where we've all been living under pressure. What comes out? And when the, the people of God experience pressure, the spirit, of God is released. Well, if that was the summary from last week, the summary for today's talk will be what's on the outside will come in if left unguarded. The thinking of the surrounding culture will creep into the church unless we stay awake and stay alert. So let's start reading then through, through this letter. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, each of these letters, Jesus reminds them of this epic revelation from Revelation chapter 1. You know, the moment where Jesus pulls back the curtain for John and says, Look at me in all my glory. Each of the letters to the seven churches, Jesus starts by lifting one of the phrases from that initial revelation and dropping it in again. Did it last week. Damalola explored this to the church in Smyrna. Jesus says, I'm the first And the last, the one that was dead and is now alive. Why would Jesus put that little phrase into the letter to the church in Smyrna? Because in Smyrna, they had this kind of idea that they were the best. They believed they were the first city in Asia Minor. We're just the best. And Jesus says, that significance you're longing for that is promised by the city, you'll only find that in me. The letter to the church in Smyrna is interesting, again, because Smyrna had this motto. We were dead, and now we're alive again. The city had been devastated by earthquakes, like left in rubble. It had been devastated by numerous battles, but each time it re-emerged. So the city had this idea, like, there's resurrection power in this city. You're going to find resurrection life here. And Jesus says, what you're longing for in the city, you're not going to find it in Smyrna. You're going to find it in me. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the archetype, the destiny of all cosmos. But more than that, I was actually dead. I'm alive again. And therefore, I can offer you resurrection power. What you're looking for from the city, it will only be fulfilled in me. What are you looking for from London? You know, what, what did you move to London for? I want to suggest you're only going to really find that significance, that fulfillment in Jesus. So why does Jesus say to the church in Pergamum, I'm the one who actually carries the sword? And the answer is because Pergamum, the symbol for the city was the sword. The city of Pergamum were given the right of the sword. In other words, um, the Roman Empire had given Pergamum one of the only cities in the empire, the power to inflict capital punishment. In other words, they had the keys to life and death. And because of that symbol, all over the city, you would see the swords. Everywhere you went, sword, 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 which gave the atmosphere of a city at war. And they were at war. But not with nations and not against armies, but with ideas. This was a city in pursuit of intellectual freedom and pursuit of knowledge. In fact, the city was known for its library, one of the biggest libraries in the ancient world. Um, The actual Greek word for parchment scroll, the derivative of that is actually from the word Pergamum. So in other words, this city had swagger, like we're a really intellectual city. Um, And suddenly this kind of pursuit of yearning for truth, longing for truth. This is what John Stott, the theologian, said. He said, here in Pergamum, a pitched battle was being fought in which the soldiers were not men, but ideas, like a battle for truth. They were fighting this battle on two fronts. Number one, ideas that conflict with God's revelation in Jesus Christ were bombarding the church from the outside. But secondly, ideas that conflict with God's revelation in Jesus Christ were pressuring the church from the inside. And it was the latter one that was destroying the church in. Pergamon. Listen to this. This is Daryl Johnson, a theologian who wrote a beautiful commentary on Revelation. He says this, most growing Christians, in other words, mature Christians, are relatively able to spot and resist ideas that are blatantly contrary to God's will and his way. It's the ideas that come to us wrapped in religious language, which are more difficult to spot and resist. That's why it's sometimes harder to be a faithful disciple in a country with a Christian veneer that is in a country that militantly opposes Jesus and his way. In the latter case, the lines between truth and error are very clearly drawn. There is clearly no middle ground. That's not the case here in London. All these ideas wrapped in religious language, infiltrating the church, leaving us feeling disorientated. So what does Jesus say next? Verse 13, he says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Unbelievably intense, right? If I came to you and said, by the way, great to meet you. I know where you live, <laughs> where Satan has his throne. You would be shaken to the court, right? Why would Jesus say of Pergamum that that is the city where Satan has his throne? That's fully, fully intense. There's three potential ideas why. Number one, Pergamum was the capital city of the province of Asia, and therefore it was the centre of Caesar worship. So in 29 BC, the city sought and won permission to build the first ever temple in honour of Caesar Augustus. Hopefully you can see um, the remains of that temple on the, the screen. In other words, in Pergamum, you know, Caesar worship was everywhere. You know, we proclaim Caesar is Lord. So there was a battle in the spiritual realm. Is Jesus Lord? Is Caesar Lord Maybe that's why Jesus says this is the place that you know. There's a grip of darkness over the city, or maybe it's this idea. Behind Pergamum, overlooking Pergamum, was a huge hill, a thousand feet high, and on that hill stood numerous temples. One of those temples was dedicated to the god Asclepius, who was the god of healing. Now, the symbol of Asclepius was a serpent, right? Does that ring any bells? Genesis 3, Adam, Eve, a serpent entering the garden. This is a statue on the screen of Asclepius um, receiving some prayer ministry. That's obviously a joke. Um, but he's in that posture, isn't he? But you can see the, the serpent climbing up the, the staff. Now, one of the practices that took place in the temple, if you were searching for healing, you'd rock up at the temple and you'd stay overnight, sleepover in a pitch black temple, right? And once the people in the temple fell asleep, they would release serpents into the temple. And if the serpent slid over you, a touch from the serpent would bring healing. That's what they believed. So thousands would come to the temple, lie on the floor, probably absolutely terrified, waiting for a touch of the serpent. Sound dark? Bully dark. You're meant to be nodding your head. Yeah, bully dark and terrified. Maybe that's why Jesus said... This is where Satan has his throne. Or maybe it was this. There was another temple on that same hill overlooking Pergamum. It was the temple of the Roman god Zeus. Zeus was known as the savior of the world. In other words, there's conflict right there with the Christians who are proclaiming Jesus is the savior of the world. Now, the the altar of that temple, you can see it on the screen, was in the shape of a throne. And that throne looked over and dominated the city. Pergamon lived in the shadow of this throne of the god Zeus, right? I don't know which one of these three reasons, maybe all of them together, Jesus says, like, there is a grip of darkness on Pergamon. And what we realize when we read this letter is there's a radical intolerance to darkness when it comes to the person of Jesus. Now let's just talk about the radical intolerance of Jesus because this creates uneasiness with our modern ears. Jesus is intolerant because he will not tolerate lies because lives enslave. Falsehood diminishes freedom. Falsehood diminishes freedom. Back to Daryl Johnson, this theologian. He says, Jesus is passionately intolerant. Not just intolerant, he's passionate about it. Because he's passionately intolerant of people being enslaved. Yes, he's deeply grieved when people are imprisoned by illness or poverty or political oppression. But what grieves him most is people who are imprisoned by false ideas, false presuppositions about the world, ourselves and God. He's especially intolerant of false ideas being taught and perpetuated in his name. You know, tolerance isn't a biblical virtue. Patience is. Understanding is. Civility is. Graciousness is. Humility is not tolerance. Jesus says, this is his primary proclamation during his ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not tolerate all these other ideas. Turn away from them and turn towards me. So Jesus was known for his radical intolerance, but he was also known for his radical inclusion. And in Jesus, we see the marriage of both intolerance and inclusion. This is what the early church was known for, by the way. So when it comes to radical inclusion, the community of the early church, it just raised so many questions because they were breaking down all of the dividing walls that were in the community, keeping people apart. You know, When you rocked up to church on Sunday, there was no division between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. This was a community of racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, gender diversity. Like phenomenal diversity, right? Radical inclusion. Jesus marries both together. Radical intolerance plus radical inclusion. And it's interesting that the church in the West right now, what are we known for? And often it's exclusion. I'm just speaking about the Church of England of disproportionately white, particularly when it comes to leadership structures, disproportionately middle class. Are we known for radical inclusion? And what are we known for when it comes to tolerance? We're known for being pretty tolerant, right? It wasn't that long ago we had a bishop in the Church of England who didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll just embrace any ideas, right? You know, the early church were known for radical intolerance of lies and radical inclusion. So what does Jesus say we should be intolerant of? What did he say to the church in Pergamum? And the answer is the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites. Right. Let me just break down their teaching by looking at the names, um, the nickellations. Nicholas. I'm aware that there is a Nick right in front of me here. So let me do justice. Do your name. So it's a Greek name, Nick. Any other Nicks in the house? Just wave a hand. There we go. A couple of Nicks. This is for you. This is your moment. Um, the root of your name is Nickan, meaning victory. Laos, meaning people. Victory um, for the people. Right. That's what it's meant to mean. Bringing victory. To the people, that's your destiny. That's what God's called you to. But when it came to the Nicolaitans, there was subver- there was a subversion of the truth, and it became victory over the people, enslaving them with their teaching, holding them in captivity. What about Balaam? Well, Balaam's a Hebrew word, same meaning. Balaam, uh, bal, sorry, meaning victory, am meaning people. Victory of the people. In the best sense, victory for the people, but what it had become was victory over the people, enslaving the people, holding them in captivity. And Jesus is intolerant of that. Will not tolerate captivity. So what were these two two groups teaching? And essentially they were teaching the same thing. Here it is. Eat whatever you want, including meat sacrificed to idols, and have sex with whoever you want, including those outside the covenant of marriage. Now some of you will be thinking, that sounds great. Like, how do I find out more about the Nicolaitans and the Balamites, right? Um, What's so toxic about that message, that teaching? Now, it is toxic, by the way. Which is why the first council of Jerusalem, the first time the apostles gather to wrestle with what's happening in the culture. And how do we be alert to the teaching that's been passed down to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they have that council, this is the conclusion of all the heavyweights coming together. Um, they make this proclamation as a summary. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, we're important to, good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Not to burden you with anything except the following requirements. This is the summary. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Like these are the two things you need to be aware of because these two things are entering into the church and destroying the church from the inside, right? Jesus now speaks over the church in Pergamum. You need to be aware of this teaching. So let's look at the first bit then. Eat whatever you want, including meat, sacrificed to idols. Why is that a big deal? And the answer is because feasting forms family. Now in the ancient world, both in the Jewish worldview and the Gentile worldview, when you had a meal, you would come together before the meal. You would offer it to the God that you worshipped. The God was seen to be a guest at the meal. In other words, you were in the presence of that God. So think of communion when we celebrate the Eucharist. Communion meaning union with. It's union with Jesus, right? And it's union with one another. Through the Eucharist, we remind ourselves that we're a family in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Union with. Paul says when he teaches about the Eucharist, he says, there is one loaf and we who are many are one body, one family, because we share in the one life. This meal forms family, right? But that was true in other meals where food was dedicated to other gods. There was a unity taking place, an embracing of darkness. So feasting forms family, but more than that, feasting facilitates worship. In other words, it's a spiritual act, you're communing with a deity. So what does Paul say when he addresses this to the church in Corinth? He says, Do I mean that food sacrificed to idols is anything? It's like, no, not really. It's just meat. It's just meat. Or that an idol is anything. No, not really. It's just a bit of stone or a wooden carving. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, spiritual darkness. And I don't want you to be participants with. Demons. In other words, when you're celebrating this feast and, and and you're embracing this moment of communion, do you know that you're opening yourself to spiritual darkness? There are spiritual forces behind the idols. Don't welcome them in; they will destroy you from the inside. What does C.S. Lewis once say? Idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. Always break the hearts of their worshippers. So that's why don't feast, you know, and eat the food sacrificed to, to idols. But then. You've got this second part, which is don't have sex with just whoever you want in any given moment. Why is that important? And the answer is the same logic. Sex forms family. Pretty obvious, right? If you need help understanding that, chat to Anna or one of the team. So sex (laughs) forms family, but then secondly, sex facilitates worship. In other words, it's a spiritual act, What does Paul say when he talks about sex? He basically says, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not just a physical being, you're a spiritual being. So in the act of of sex, it's not just two bodies connecting, it's two souls connecting, and God is present in that moment. Sex is an act of Worship, who you're worshipping, ascribing worth to, well, that's a secondary question. You need to know sex is an act of worship and God's involved in the process, right? It's like you've got to take this stuff seriously. Jesus is saying because you're ignoring this stuff, spiritual darkness is grabbing hold of the church, entering into the church. That's why Lewis Smeads, an ethicist, writes this. He says, there's no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. The Christian assaults reality in other words, what it means to be human, in his night out at the brothel. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. The demand for self-restraint is not a killjoy rule plastered on the abundant life by anti-sexual saints. It's respect for reality, what it means to be human. So let me try and articulate the 21st century equivalent of the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the Balamites. This is going to be intense, but are you ready? Just give me a couple of nods, even just one or two of you. I've seen two. Brilliant, I'm in. Okay, so th- this is the intellectual foundation we're going to explore now of the sexual revolution. Now, for most of us, because we weren't around when this intellectual movement and wrestling was taking place, this has become culturally like the air we breathe, the waters we swim in, right? But let me just unpack it for you so you can really see it in all its glory. Um, so Step number one um, is there is no God, right? That's step number one. That might not be obvious, but you need to know that Wilhelm Reich, who was the father figure of the sexual revolution, in his book, The Sexual Revolution, he basically says if if this movement is a success, it will destroy Christianity. We will replace religion with a different pathway to human flourishing, and that pathway will be sexual fulfillment. In other words, we want to get rid of Christianity. He also says in the book that a byproduct for this movement will be the dismantling of the family structure, which echoes the teaching of Karl Marx, right? Listen to these words, fairly punchy from Karl Marx. It says, The secret to the holy family, in other words, the divine life of God, the Trinity, the secret to the holy family is the earthly family. To make the former disappear, the latter must be destroyed in theory and in practice. Like if we just destroy the structure of the family, we will obscure people's vision of the Holy Family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, the seeds of this movement were let's just replace Christianity and religion with a different pathway to human flourishing. So step number one is there is no God. If you build on that, if there's no God, then we are the center of the universe. That's the mindset of the enlightenment movement, right? We're the center of the universe. If you build on that, you realize that the highest form of love is eros love. Agape love isn't available, right? We've got rid of God, so the highest form of love is eros love. So listen to these words from Ernest Becker who says, after all, What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, right? Through romance. Through sexual encounters. We want salvation, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. Needless to say, human partners can't do this, right? Redemption through romance, redemption through sex. So recently, the BBC, you know, published an article which was about a book that had been released on the life and legacy of Reich, this intellectual father for the sexual revolution. And, and the headline for the article, which I thought was brilliant, is The Man Who Thought Orgasms Could Save the World. Who wouldn't want to read that, right? <laughs> the Man Who Thought Orgasms Could Save the World. Now, orgasms are really good, Right. You're allowed to agree. So much nervous energy. So much nervous energy. People are like, can I nod? I don't know. Is the answer no? Maybe, maybe the answer is no. Are, are orgasms good? Orgasms are really good, right? Are we allowed to talk about this stuff in the Church of England? Don't know. But orgasms are really good. Do they have the power to change the world, right? And the answer is no, by the way, just in case. Like, the answer's... No, but if you believe orgasms do have the power to save the world, then it will lead you to this conclusion that sexual fulfillment is the key to human flourishing, right? And just be aware that that statement means that Jesus couldn't have lived a full life as a single man who was not sexually active, right? But that's the kind of thinking of the age. Sexual fulfillment is the key to human flourishing, which means freedom to express our sexual desire is a basic human right. That, that is the thinking of the age we Living. Now, what happens with philosophical arguments, I want to make this really clear, is that you build on logic. If A, then B, then C, you keep building until you get to your conclusion. And then over time, when A and B reach universal, kind of like that everyone believes in it, everyone, you know, there's consensus around A and B, you get rid of that and you just start with if C, then D, and you build on that. And what we reach is this understanding the secular West. People, a younger generation, who weren't around during the intellectual wrestling, they don't know the foundations. In other words, there's no God. We're the centre of the universe. They just start with sexual fulfilment is the key to human flourishing. People are like, yeah, 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 that that makes sense. Therefore, freedom to express our sexual desires is a basic human right. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. And then as people come to faith, you have this scenario. I believe there is a God... And I'm going to try and do this moment of syncretism where I believe there is a God and that sexual fulfillment is the key to human flourishing. And why doesn't it seem to fit? And it's because they're logically incompatible, right? One of them is built upon the idea that there is no God. And the other one that there is a God and his name is Jesus and the two don't go together. One basically says, Jesus is the pathway to human flourishing. And the other one basically says, no, he isn't, sexual fulfillment is. And this is the tussle we're actually in. It's a question of lordship, right? So what happens when you redeem the pyramid? So there is a God. That's the beginning of our faith in Jesus. We proclaim that Jesus is Lord. He is God. And therefore, we can't be the center of the universe. God is. That means the highest form of love can't be eros love. It must be the love that comes from God, the love that's displayed at the cross. So the highest form of love is agape love, right? The love of Jesus that he laid down his life for us, which means the pathway to human flourishing must be the love of God. Therefore, it's possible, like Jesus, to be single and sexually not active and fully, fully alive. And even when you say it out loud, you can feel the sense of, really? Like, really? It's the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus is enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the gospel message, which means that submitting our desires to the will of God is central to our Christian worship. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. In other words, like submitting your desires to the will of Jesus, that's how we love God, that's how we worship God. Now, if you agree, and not everyone will agree, and I'm cool with that, but if you agree with this pyramid, what it leads to is a really essential conversation about the will of God when it comes to human sexuality. And that's the conversation in the coming months that we're going to try and facilitate as a church family. And I'm fully aware that that conversation will stir up anxiety of like, oh my goodness. Because we watch how these conversations happen in the world and we're like, oh my goodness. It's going to mean defriending people. It might mean I have to leave churches. It's going to mean cancel culture. It's going to mean, it's going to mean a huge amount of hate. And I would say, why? Why? Because there's something beautiful, so powerful that unites us. Do you know what it is? It's the blood of Jesus and the love of Jesus for us and our love for him. So we can disagree without hating each other. How amazing is that? That's incredible. What? Let me just say it again. I can disagree and not have to hate someone. Wow, it's like discovering fire. That's amazing. And that means we can actually wrestle together with the scriptures, living 2,000 years later, be like, okay, what is the will of God when it comes to our sexual desires? Like the refusal to ask and wrestle with that question is an invitation for the world to dictate a vision when it comes to sexual human flourishing, right? Like What we care about is following the way of Jesus in everything, including our sexual desires. So we're gonna go on that journey. Terrified, great. But the spirit of God will lead us. The grace of Jesus will be sufficient and it will be a conversation that leads us to life. I believe that with all of my heart. Our model for the conversations will be Jesus. What does he say, verse 16? Repent, therefore, like change of thinking, otherwise I'll soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, people read that and think, That's just incredibly intense. It's it's more warfare language. That's so misunderstood, that statement. Can I explain what's going on? Jesus is basically saying, my words will bring life. This image of Jesus with the sword is expanded in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, he's on a horse now, fun, a white horse. And the sword is actually coming out of his mouth. And he's in white robes and they're drenched in blood. Now, some bizarre parts of the church will be like, yeah, that's the Jesus I love. Horse, sword, blood, crushing enemies, yeah. Um, but they misunderstand the image, right? The blood all over his robes is his own blood, Right? This isn't primarily the sword of punishment because Jesus has taken the punishment in on himself. That's why this is phenomenally good news. What is this sword coming out of his mouth? It's the proclamation of truth that brings liberty. Jesus won't tolerate lies. He won't tolerate people being enslaved and deceived and and caught up in addictions. He won't tolerate that because he cares about freedom and he cares about life. So he rides around on this horse with his own blood on display saying, I want to set you free from lies that would enslave you. This isn't the sword of punishment that we fear. This is the sword of liberation and it's the sword of justice that overcomes evil. So let me close with this. Jesus lands his letter to the church in Pergamum. It's been a pretty intense letter, which is why this talk has been pretty intense. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, in other words, to the one who actually repents, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Two thoughts here. I'll give them hidden manna. In other words, what is manna? It's bread from heaven. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. In other words, what you've been searching for in sexual encounters is some level of fulfillment. You experience a hunger and you try and satisfy that hunger through sex. And Jesus says, if you actually come to me, what you're craving, you'll find fulfillment in me. And way more than any sexual encounter, any orgasm could ever, ever offer, Jesus says, I will give you that kind of food, that kind of manna, bread from heaven. And then he goes on to say, but more than that, I'll give you a white stone with a new name on it. Mm. Which sounds very new age, doesn't it? Like, oh, what's your name? And what's your white stone name? (laughs) Oh, my my name's Pete. My white stone name is Dave. And I want you to call me Dave. You know, it's like weird what's going on. The white stone name is the ancient equivalent of this, a friendship necklace. Like what they would do in in the ancient world is they'd take a white stone, they would split it and they would give it to each partner. Basically saying, we may never see each other again, but we will always be part of one another. Kind of a a form of covenant. Like I will always love you. I will always be for you, right? Till death us do part. What do we say when people get married? When they say their vows, till death us do part. And that's why marriage, by the way, it's just a pale imitation of our relationship with God because not even death can separate us from the love of Jesus, right? Not even death. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you a white stone with a, a, a new name on it. You know, the intimacy that you've been craving, this companionship, this longing to be fully known and fully loved. I'm gonna give you this white stone so that you will always know that I love you. I will never leave nor forsake you. And and I will give my very life to the point of death so that you can experience fullness of life. You know, all of these letters in Revelation, the seven letters, they're all really about lordship. Who's in charge of your life? Who's Lord? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, brilliant German theologian, he he once said, look, if, if God isn't Lord of all, he's not really Lord at all, which I know is fully intense, he was an incredibly intense guy. Um, but he's basically saying, if he's not Lord of your money, he's not really Lord. He's not really on the throne in charge. If he's not Lord of your career, your relationships, he's not really Lord. And if he's not Lord of your sexual desires, he's, he's not really Lord. But if you surrender, like we did a little while ago when we got down on our knees, and even with the tug of resistance, say, Jesus, I proclaim that you are Lord. you know what he'll do? He'll lead us to life. He'll lead us to freedom, to a wide open space because that's his name
1: and that's his nature. He's the one that brings us life and life in all its fullness.